Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in this morning. Heavenly Father, it is just great to be here. And one of the things that we love most about you is that you love kids. And so, Lord, I pray that everything we do today, that uh, we bring glory to you. Thank you for the power of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Now, here's what's interesting. Uh, when we talk about heroes, uh, we always think about childhood heroes. But uh, I got to be honest, the, the longer I live, the real heroes are usually not adults. In my life, it's kids are heroes. You may have read the paper on Christmas Eve. This actually happened here on the west side on December 10th. If not, let me break it down for you. Young man in sixth grade here at Grandview School, our neighbor here. If you remember, Grandview is one of the schools. And we had our prayer walk. We prayed that God would do amazing things through this school. So this young man, Logan Combs, he's the, he's the older of the brothers here, the picture you see. Coming home from Grandview School, the bus comes up to this intersection, turns right on State Road 45. Down the roadways, as he's looking forward, he sees the bus driver is basically going out. And he runs to the front of the bus while the entire bus now has crossed the center line. And he sees a van coming on and he reaches out and he hits the brake to stop the bus right before the van gets there as, he wave, as he's waving at the van. Now, if that's not enough, then he looks in the rearview mirror and he sees a semi coming. And he reaches over and he hits the gas and he takes the bus completely off the road. That's a hero. You have any idea how many lives that day that he changed? And when they asked him, how in the world did you know what to do? How did you know what pedals to hit? He said, well, I watched my dad. That's a hero. In 1995, some of you probably saw this little movie called Forrest Gump. Anybody see that movie? Anybody? Okay. When they began uh, putting the movie together, the director came to Tom Hanks and he said, we have a real problem. He said, what's that? He goes, the young Forrest Gump, Michael Connor Humphrey, we're trying to teach him to talk like you, but he's from deep, deep in Mississippi and he cannot pronounce words the way that you do. And Tom Hanks said, that's because you're doing this in reverse. I don't need in any way for him to learn how I speak. I need to learn how he talks. So he spent countless hours with this kid. And every time you hear him with those Forrest Gump accents, he said, that is straight out of the book of Michael Connor Humphrey, age eight, deep in Mississippi. Kids are heroes. And here's what I love most about kids. God absolutely loves kids. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's an amazing story of grace and mercy. And here's what I love about this is you need to know the backstory before we get uh, to chapter 9. So let me give you that quickly. The main characters are David, Saul, and Jonathan. Just keep those three in mind. And then we're going to get to the ultimate main character. But what we know about David and Saul is, as you know, Saul was the anointed king of Israel. And for lack of a better word, he was tall, dark, and handsome. But uh, when they had the battle with David and Goliath, from that moment on, Saul's heart turned completely against David. He was just a, a king who lived with just raging jealousy. What's interesting, though, 
his son Jonathan, who would be the heir apparent to the throne, had this relationship with David, and they were really like brothers. They were best friends. And behind the scenes, Jonathan realized that his dad was a nut job, that he's doing everything in his power to eliminate David, and he's protecting David behind the scenes. Their relationship got so close over the years that they made three separate covenants with one another. And the covenant that I love most is found in 1 Samuel chapter 23. And he is with David, and I love his words. And basically he says this, you will become king. I know that. You'll become the king, and I'll be second. Now that's a friendship. But that's also somebody who loves God, who understands that you are the true anointed one. You're the one that people follow. You're the one that has the heart of God. So you'll be the king, but I'll be second. What happened, though, sadly, is Saul, as you know, died, and Jonathan died in battle. And so here's David reeling from, first of all, this jealous king who has died, but also his best friend who's died. So years go by, and David brings in an assistant, and he asks this very valuable question. Is there anyone in the house of Saul, is there anyone in the house of Jonathan who's still alive? And they said, well, actually, there is. His name is Mephibosheth. Now, say that ten times. Mephibosheth. I think I would have nicknamed him like, like, yeah, Bob. So let's call him Bob or something, but we'll go with Mephibosheth. And here's his story. In 2 Samuel 4, it said that, as you know, when there's war, it just, it's a terrible time. And during this season of war... Uh, families would hide because they knew if somebody was taking over reign, they would eliminate the whole family and eliminate anybody that potentially uh, was in line for the throne. And so the family began to scatter. And it says the caretaker of Jonathan's home uh, in fear grabbed this little guy, five years old, and started to run outside and run into the hills. And she fell and crushed this five-year-old and crushed his feet so severely that he never walked again. I mean, he never walked again. Now, remember, that's back in the days they don't have prompt care. They don't have what we have today. And so here she is hiding deep, deep in the desert area, protecting this little five-year-old. And years go by, and the word is out that David wants to bring this little guy to him. And so that's where we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 9. The desert area that was so deep that they brought this little boy from is called Lodabar. It is east of the Jordan River. It is a desert region. It is a hopeless region. It is desolate. It is without hope. In Indiana, that would be like West Lafayette. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like that. It's a terrible area. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, don't miss this. 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 1. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for who? Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David the king and said to him, are you Ziba? Yes, your servant replied. The king asked, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? 
Now let's pick up verse 4. Where is he? The king answered. And Ziba answered, he's in the house of Labar. And the king of David to him brought him to him when Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, I knew I was going to mess it up, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. He bowed down to pay him honor. And David said to him, and your servant replied, don't be afraid. Now catch this. And David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for your father, Jonathan. I will restore you, restore you to the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and I and you, now catch this, will what? Always eat at my table. I want you to just think about that this morning. Here's this crippled little boy that thought his entire life, that was it. That he would just die in this abandoned desert area. And here he is literally standing in front of the king. Can you imagine how terrified he was? Because he knows how the game is played. That's why he ran up into the mountains. He knew that he's going to kill me. He's going to make an example of me. But instead, David simply says, today your life will be changed forever because today you are going to eat at my table. Now think of the power of those words if we allowed that to really sink into our hearts. What if our table became a place that hurt people could sit at your table at all times? Think of the power is if every day we lived out and said, Lord, I know sometimes I don't want people at my table, but Lord, I want your heart and I want people at my table. And look at verse 8. I want you to look at this little guy's response. He bowed down and he said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Wow. Did you catch that? In that culture, when you said somebody was a dog, that was the lowest form of life. That's not like when we think of Lassie and you know, go to the mall and pick up the little poodles and put, no, no, we're not talking, in that culture, a dog was as low as you got, and you notice, he didn't say a dog, what did he say? A dead dog. It's as if he looked in the eyes of the king and said, you need to know something, that inside, I'm dead. I really thought you were going to kill me today, and it doesn't matter, because inside, I'm already dead. I think of all the people that we know that are dealing with death inside, that deal with loneliness. Since 1980, surveys have said that loneliness has doubled nearly 40%, even with social networking. It's interesting, I was reading, uh, a guy was sharing about an, a situation, and I want to share this with you. He said, about a decade ago, my mom was going through a divorce uh, from my stepfather. She was extremely lonely and desperate for connection. So she called a cousin that she hadn't talked to in several years. On the phone, her cousin said this, don't you have any friends? See, when you're really lonely, that's exactly what you feel like. Do you have any friends? And when you're lonely, you do anything. If you could just sit at somebody's table, if somebody would just talk to me. We live in a world surrounded by loneliness. We are surrounded by folks that are desperately hurting. And the thing that's really interesting is they're finding out more and more people think, well, because of Facebook, 
loneliness is going to simply go away because people are so connected and they're finding out that the loneliness is actually getting deeper and deeper. And I guarantee there's been times in all of your lives that you felt lonely. And some of you may be feeling that right now. That your heart is just empty. That you just feel isolated. And the amazing thing is that we have a Heavenly Father that says, you've always got room. You've always got room at my table. That's what I love so much about God. And then once again, in verse 10, I love what David says. You will always eat at my table. He wants to make sure he understands. This is my house. This is my table. And today, you are a child of the king. And it changed everything. And that what it was like for all of you. You look back in your life. Do you remember how lonely you were before you gave Jesus Christ your heart? I mean, do you remember that? You might have had friends, but you still were lonely. But when you surrendered to Christ and you really started to comprehend that he loves us so much that we can always sit at his table, that's a game changer. That is a life changer. You know, there's something powerful about a table. Um, all these years, it's funny, I have visited, I can't tell you with how many uh, folks in their homes, and uh, you'll be having these great conversations at the kitchen table, and invariably, especially guys are weird about this, to say, hey, uh, let's gra grab your coffee, let's go on in the living room, and maybe there's a show going, and the, the conversation almost stops immediately, the moment we pull away from the kitchen table. I don't know what it is about a kitchen table, but my wife, uh, I love her very much, I respect her very much, and uh, one of the things that uh, I found out really early when we had kids is, do you, anybody know what this is? This is a TV tray. I grew up with one of these bad boys, and I love them, okay? My mom and I would get, you know, our TV dinners, and we'd watch The Lone Ranger. You know, we do, and so I love that, and she's like, uh, we are never going to buy TV trays. I'm like, you know, never is a strong word. You know what? And I'm the man of the house, and we've never bought a TV tray. So anyway... I cannot tell you how priceless the conversations we've had with our family because it's a rule. TV goes off and we sit at the table and that's where life is lived. I can't tell you how many, honestly, life-changing conversations we had with our kids at the kitchen table. I bet you're the same way. If you look back in your life and you think about some of the most meaningful conversations that you've ever had, it happened at the table. There's a reason why David said, you're going to sit at my table. That was his way of saying, you know what? The most top secrets in the world, you're privy to. Every day, I want to know how you're doing. Every day, you can ask me how I'm doing. Because you know what? Today, you're my son. Today, you will sit at the table. And here's one of the things that I love. We're talking about this On Target series. Is If you look at, as we handed you this morning, if you didn't get this a couple weeks ago, here's the brochure that has all of the the different ministries, the ways that we can connect in our community. And here's what I love, is the majority of these are really focused on young people in our community. We have a task force, Brad Pontius has put together, and that was one of their underlying foundational things, is let's do everything we can to get people involved with young people. And then we wanted you to have this, uh, because this is what's coming next week to conclude our series, is just a basic commitment card. We want to know on both the East and West Campus, how in the world can we step forward 
to start helping others. No matter what you're going through, one of the best ways to grow in your faith and to grow out of depression and grow out of loneliness, you know the best way, is serving somebody else. So that's what we're going to do as a community. We're going to find ways to serve others, and especially we want to find ways to reach young people for Christ. We've been talking a lot about poverty. We've been talking about a lot of struggles that young people have and families have. And so I just want to share with you some snapshots of our community here uh, in Bloomington and Monroe County. 24% Monroe County, 24% of the population is below the poverty rate. So let me tell you what the poverty rate is just to kind of give you an idea. If you are a family of four and you make under $24,000, you're below that poverty line. Now you might say, $24,000? That's pretty good. I can live on $24,000. Really? Start doing the math because here's what happens. Let's say you're making $24,000. You have absolutely no room for anything unexpected. Would you raise your hand if you had an unexpected expense this week? Anybody? Am I the only one? Yeah. There's a lot of you that are not telling the truth. Okay, we have <laughs> unexpected things that come all the time. But you know what? The majority of us will say, you know what? I can handle that. I have some emergency fund. I can network. I have friends. I have family. And we'll get through it. In 2015, uh, Monroe County School System 313 homeless children in Monroe County. We give away backpacks every fall. Uh, last year, they gave away 350 backpacks at Sherwood Oaks. The average housing rate in Bloomington is $688 a month. So if you're making $24,000, just do the math. And you heard her say childcare is roughly $250. A week. So you think, how do you crawl out of that hole? And now you begin to understand the urgency. So we need to not just talk about it. We need to start praying about, God, how can I move into this difficult place that maybe I haven't even thought about in the past? I love that Brad sat down with the leadership team from Clear Creek Christian Church. Clear Creek, for the last 10 years, has worked so hard to build bridges into the community and reach out to underprivileged kids. And here's the three things they said any congregation that wants to make an impact, here's what they've learned. Number one, they said, pray, pray, pray. Pray that God will give you a heart for the hurting. It isn't just something because we're in church. It's seriously begin to pray. And then number two, they said, here's what we found is success. Success is consistent, long-haul relationships. Long haul. It's not a, we're going to show up, you know, one day a year, and we're going to hand out cookies, and we're, again, that's not terrible. They said, if you want significant success, the best thing you could do is form a relationship, one, with a needy family, that it is consistent, and it is long haul. And number three is, always point kids to Jesus, with or without words. Jesus, as Todd said, he's the ultimate hero, that no matter what, Young people, they need to know that you love Jesus, not just with your words, but with your actions, because Jesus can take anybody who is hopeless, and he can give them hope. Do you agree with that? 
If he's changed your life, guess what? He can change anyone's life. And it's our responsibility to just set on that truth is absolutely wrong. God has called us to get out there and to truly make a difference. In Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6, is one of the most powerful, um, hard-hitting scriptures and teachings of Jesus. Uh, Because when I read it, I, I believe to understand the heart of God because I think God speaks and tugs on the heart of every parent. So let me just share what's going on because I guarantee parents and grandparents, you've been here. And if you haven't been there, then I'll just say that I stand alone on my emotion that I'm going to share with you. All the children came running up to Jesus. You know that scene? All the children came. I I just feel like that was one of those moments that Jesus leaned back and actually laughed. That he smiled. I can see him always ruffling the kid's hair, you know. I, I really can. I can just see Jesus absolutely loving the kid. And I think Jesus was, the love just came out of Jesus so much. that You know how kids, they pick up on that. And I think they just surrounded Jesus. I think they were sitting on his lap. And I think there was all the laughter that was going on. Remember, it's kind of funny. Do you remember when the disciples said, hey, Jesus, get the kids out of here? You remember that? And Jesus said, no, let them stay. And they're like, okay, let them stay. You know, it's, just, it's a great scene. And they're all flooding around Jesus. And, and Jesus just, you can just see they're just taking in the moment. And then you get to verse 6. And man, Jesus drops down this truth. And you may remember this. It's almost as if Jesus said, oh, by the way, while I have your attention, If any of you ever lead one of these little ones astray, it would be better if they tied a huge millstone on your neck and you would drown. Now, I think that got their attention. What do you think? But I want you to listen to the passion and what Jesus said. If any of you don't comprehend how much I love these kids and you hurt these kids, let me tell you something. It would be better if you died. Because let me tell you, you tie a millstone on your neck and you get thrown in deep waters, you're dying, okay? And Jesus said, it would be better that you drowned. Now think about the power of those words. So I started thinking over the last 26 years of my life, uh, my oldest daughter, uh, Marina, our oldest daughter, Rachel, just turned uh, 26, being a parent, and as I reflected this week, of people who really have either frustrated me or annoyed me the most in life. Do you know preachers get annoyed with people? Anybody? Really annoyed. And sometimes I have a, a temper issue and I have to watch that. But you know who really has got on my nerve? I thought about this. It's the people who either mistreated or disrespected or unfairly treated one of my kids. Am I the only one? I've seen mothers so gentle and nice until you do something to one of their kids. And then it's bar the doors. You know what I'm saying? Now, why is that? You're not doing that to my kid. You will not disrespect my kid. I was in a principal's office years ago, grade school principal, and I think he thought I would be gentle preacher guy, and he had done something very unfairly to my son, and I was not gentle preacher guy. I didn't cuss. But I wanted to. You know, I'm just going to lay it on. I mean, it was like, stand up like, don't you ever. You know, anyway, back that up. I don't want to go down. We all feel that, don't we? Don't you ever do that to one of my kids. Now, you know who I admire the most over the last 26 years? People who treated my kids with respect. People who lifted my kids up, encouraged my kids, sometimes even inspired my kids. They're my heroes. I mean, they're the ones I 
Thank you for what you've done for my kids. I don't think I'm alone there. Now you begin to understand the heartbeat of God. And these are my kids. You do whatever it takes for my kids. I want to share with you, uh, in closing, a couple of pictures that I found uh, going through an old scrapbook. Um, years ago, um, uh, the, I, was, I was one of these kids. I had, in grade school, I'm talking absolutely zero confidence. You know, uh, single mom, raised by my mom, my sister. Uh, I had a bike accident, so basically I had buck teeth, and we didn't have money to get my teeth fixed, so I never smiled. And I could go on and on. I was just this goofy, just awkward, almost semi-depressed little guy. The only thing I really loved was baseball. And the first two years that I played baseball, uh, I was a right fielder. Did anybody here ever play Little League Baseball? Do you know what I mean when I say right field? Because every kid who's ever played it played right field. You know, there's a comedian, Brian Regan. When you play right field, the only thing you look forward to is a grape snow cone. You know, at the end of the game. So I want to shift things, bring that picture up. So this is, uh, this is my second year. I'm the little guy hunched over holding the sign that won't look at the camera, okay? And that was my first full two years. And then we got a, a new manager my third year. And I thought, um, maybe he'll notice me. And the very first game of the year uh, was cold, rainy, and I, I couldn't wait for him to read the starting lineup. And he read the starting lineup, and um, my name was on the starting lineup. So I knew, hey, I'm going to right field. And then it got, I got more depressed. I'm a little guy. I'm only like 11. But I'm thinking, honestly, I'm not good at anything. I am absolutely terrible. At it. I, can't even, I can't even get the attention of a co- Here, I'm giving up on this stupid. This is stupid. This is stupid. You know, I'm just, as every inning goes by, and you also know in Little League, they, they have a rule called the mercy rule. Anybody know what that is? If you're getting killed by more than 10 runs, they cut the game early, which when you're a right fielder means you're not even getting in the game. You know, now I'm, I'd figure that out. I'm not getting a bat. I'm not even getting in the game. And so the fifth inning rolls around, and we're getting killed, 15 runs or more, and the coach yells out, Robertson, grab a bat. I'm like, I didn't know he knew my name, so I get the bat. And I'd love to tell you that I hit a home run, and, you know, the scoreboard broke, and as I jogged around, there were fireworks, but <laughs> I got a bloop single. But I was mad. So I got to first base, and I'm, I looked at the first base coach, and he said, now get a good lead. I said, I'm stealing second. You know, stole second, and then I thought, I'm really ticked. And I stole third, and when I slid in the third, Coach Hill, a big guy, our head coach, he looked at me, and I had this huge scab, completely peeled my scab off. And so the blood's just like coming out through the jersey. And he said, John, he said, um, you want me to take you out of the game? I said, don't you dare take me out of the game. He said, I'm going to score. And the very next pitch was a wild pitch, and I scored. Didn't matter. We still got massacred. And I went back to the dugout, and I thought, doesn't matter. I'm not even going to get a snow cone. I could care less. I was getting my shoes, and I hear this kind of a booming voice. Uh, he chewed us out. You guys don't hustle. You're going to pray. You know, he, Coach Hiller was tough. And uh, he said, now go get your stupid concessions, you know. And everybody took off, and I'm, was, I'm getting my shoes on. 
And um, he says, Robertson. And uh, I looked up, and I walked towards him, and I couldn't even look him in the eyes. Coach Hill was this big, massive guy. And he took my head, and he tilted it so I had to look him in the eyes. And um, he said, I want you to know something. I saw you today. You will never, as long as you play for me, you will never play right field again. And that day, he changed my life. Now, you might say, you can't change somebody's life when they're 11 years old. And I'll tell you, he did. Because when I went home that day, I wasn't John Robertson kicked around. John, this is like, I'm going to kick butt and I'm going to take numbers. I'm serious. You know what's amazing? You can do that too. God gives within every one of us that opportunity. That there's a kid who doesn't realize that there's a place at the table. Think of how many kids do not have a place at the table, but we can be the people that step out and give them that place. That's what God's called every one of us to do. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to think about a powerful, powerful verse, and it's in Galatians 3.26. It's a very simple verse, but it simply says this, we are all God's children. Now think about that. All of us. We're all broken. And when you think about this little guy that David basically adopted on the spot, his entire life, think about this, he was carried. Somebody carried him. And I thought, you know what? I think that's a perfect picture of communion. Have you ever had those Sundays when you come to the table and you are so broken, Jesus is actually carrying you to the table? There's Sundays you may not have enough strength hardly to get to the table, but he's there to carry you. And so when we come this morning, I want you to think about, first of all, the brokenness in your life, that when you break the bread, it represents your brokenness, and it's the brokenness of the body of Christ. And when you drink the juice, it represents the suffering for us. He loves us that much. But also, would you remember those kids that they're broken and they don't have a table? They don't have anybody. So we're going to do everything we can to reach those kids. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you haven't been here before, we have four tables. So you can take your time. You can pray with one another. You can do whatever you want. There'll be those up here who will pray with you uh, as you approach the table and break bread with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we love what you have done for us. And Lord, we think of the men and the women in our lives that um, when we were hurting and um, we were struggling, that invested in us, that believed in us, that made room at their tables for us. And so, Lord, I pray that we will make room at the table for others. Thank you for loving us so much that through our brokenness, uh, you gave us the example of communion. So Lord, be with everybody who comes here this morning that breaks bread with you to realize what you have done for us. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.